Okay, so if you would turn to Mark chapter 1, I know that's three times now, but Mark chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 29 through 45. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the expanding ministry of Christ. So we're going to look at him expanding his ministry, um, what that looks like, the, the, the um, image of, of Mark, uh, excuse me, the image of Christ that Mark is trying to get us to see. Um, we're gonna, uh, it's going to come into more focus today. Uh, is my prayer. So if you would, Mark chapter 1, stand with me. We're going to read these verses together as a body in honor of the one who gave us this word. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 45. It reads, And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she began waiting on them. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while, he was, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place, and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go elsewhere, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went, preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, pleading with him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the news around, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning as a body um, to sing praises to you, um, what beauty it is, a small taste of what heaven uh, will be like singing praises as a church to you, um, singing your word to you, Lord. I'm so thankful for that and your grace that has brought us together. For this message this morning, we pray, Lord, that our hearts will be prepared to receive it, that it would impact each one of us exactly as you intend it to, that it would challenge us where we need to be, comforted where we need to be. I pray, Lord, that you remove any distractions from me, um, any um, nerves, and uh, I pray that your word would be preached clearly um, and that would be articulated so that everyone uh, would understand and, and that, Lord, you would just simply be glorified in all that's done here this morning. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> all right, so in this particular uh, text this morning, we're going to wrap up chapter one with a pretty hefty chunk, but really... In this flow of events, we're seeing a picture of Christ. Mark has, has designated or really um, drawn out a picture of Christ here, but there's so very few words. If you notice in Matthew, when you're flipping pages through Matthew, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, especially if you're a red-letter Bible, you'll see a lot of red in Matthew, right? There's a lot of teaching of Jesus. But in Mark, there's very few red, but there's a lot of doing of Jesus. What did he do? What are his actions? And Mark takes... takes Jesus' actions and, and paints a word picture around what those actions are to draw us into 
who Christ is. And so our prayer this morning, my hope is that we'll be able to see Christ more clearly this morning. And he's going to take us through several events quickly that happened. It's going to wrap up a two-day period and then expand from Capernaum out to the surrounding villages. Um, and really the, the image that I hope and, and pray will be seen today is going to round out in a couple different ways. So last week we saw Jesus as Messiah Savior. Um, our, our, our theme for Mark is Jesus as the Messiah Savior, Warrior King, um, and, and there's several aspects of what we're going to see him in Mark. And so the last week we saw him as a Messiah Savior as he proclaimed in verse 15 the king, kingdom being at hand. And he said, repent, believe. So he's calling people to this repentance. This week we're going to see him established as a warrior king and as a compassionate servant. So we're going to see more of a warrior king. We saw a taste of that last week. We're going to see the warrior king rounded out this week. And then we're going to see the compassionate servant that he is um, come to more uh, clarity as well. So those are the three things, the three aspects of Christ's um, uh, image that we get to see today as it hopefully will become more clear as we go through this together this morning. Um, there is a fly, so if you see me swatting, that's why. Um, so uh, point number one, healings. So point number one, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 34. So we're going to look where Mark has healings first. So I'm going to read to you Mark 29, or excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34 to begin. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to her, spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she began waiting on them. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill, and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. So now we see that the four that... that Christ has just called. We talked about the disciples last week. Mark only records four here at this particular section of his gospel. And we see that these four men have been in the synagogue. He's taught with power. He's taught with complete authority. We, we remember from last week his authority has been established. And now they're done in the synagogue and they're moving out of the synagogue into Peter's house. And I want to set the stage for you. I want hopefully to draw you to where that is in Capernaum. Um, there's actually what most would agree has been found is Peter's home itself. Um, actually, in Capernaum, they've done archaeological digs. They've found a home that is within stone's throw of the synagogue. And you have to remember they were only allowed to walk certain distances on the Sabbath. So if they were in the synagogue, they could only walk so far. So that means the house had to be within a certain distance of the synagogue. Anyway, they've done these archaeological digs. And they found what they believe is, is Peter's house based on Greek, Latin, Syriac, and Aramaic Christian writings throughout the plaster of the house. Um, that would indicate at the very least it was a church, but most likely was Peter's house based on the size of it. And the way it looks is it's a very interpolar house. So in other words, there's a courtyard or insular house, excuse me, there's a courtyard in the middle of the, the house, and there would be four um corridors that are attached in a big square, roughly, and all the windows and doors open to the inside of the corridor, or excuse me, inside of the courtyard. And the only way to access the courtyard is a gated corridor that came from the street. So it had very little access to the street, so more of a private location. 
Um, and so whenever they would go into these areas, the hub of the house, everything that happened in the house was out in the courtyard. The rooms were really just meant to be cooked in possibly or, or sleep, those kinds of things. So I hope in your mind's eye you can picture a large square room with a big courtyard. They've arrived, and now they're coming to him saying, hey, my, the mother-in-law of Peter is sick. And there's a few things that we want to understand with the idea of his mother-in-law living with him. There's a few things for us to, to walk away from uh, from a practical standpoint is, number one, he's married. Peter was clearly married here, wouldn't have a mother-in-law. A second thing is if the mother-in-law is living with Peter, the husband of her, of her daughter, it means that she's a widow. Um, she would have been living with her husband had that been the case. Um, so at this point, we know that Peter is married and is taking care of his widowed mother-in-law. And so arriving at the house here, um, they, they come in and we get to see a glimpse into Jesus's ministry to what you would consider are the common people. Fishermen were not high dignitaries. They were actually at the bottom of the social class. Um, this particular house probably was not, although functional, it's probably not ornate. Um, it wasn't uh, built up very large or, or a lot of extra amenities of those days or anything like that. This was a common home that Jesus chose to stay in. And, and many people think that this is actually where Christ would have lived in Capernaum and based his ministry out of because of the size of the house um, and because of, of the base of ministry and his Peter being basically the head disciple, if you will, uh, many think that this is where Christ would have based his, his ministry out of. So when we look at him going to the mother-in-law, they all come to him and they say, hey, Peter's mom is sick. And notice that he came right to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she began waiting on them. There's a few things to notice. First of all, as completely different of the culture of that day, there's no incantations, there's no chants, there's no verbal communication from Mark's record. There's a slight verbal communication from Luke's perspective. If you look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 39 and the same record of this event, um, it says that he rebuked the fever. But here we are with Peter's mother-in-law having a fever. And the reason why they would have come to Jesus is fevers in that day were viewed as demonic oppression or discipline from God. So the, the, a fever of those days was not simply just, you know, we pop a couple of Tylenol today or an ibuprofen and you break your fever and you go on with life, hopefully, Lord willing. But in those days, it was demonic oppression. It was thought to be demonic oppression or fever. The word that, that is rebuke in Luke's recording of this exact same situation, this exact same story, is the word for exorcism. So there's this idea that Christ is rebuking or exercising the demon that would have been within the mother-in-law. It's very hard to say whether it actually was demon possession or not. I'm just the words that's being used there by the writers. It does leave it open for interpretation that there could have been a demon in her. But what the point that I want to make here is Christ still is exercising his authority over the demons for the common people. He's not focused on the rich. He's not focused on the wealthy. He did not come to be seen, but he came to serve. He did not come to wave a flag of here I am, but he came to hide his identity to complete his mission. And we're going to see more about that as we go forward. But we want to understand that Christ's authority is being exercised for the common person. This is a very low-key, no-nonsense 
no fanfare miracle. And what does she immediately do? She immediately begins waiting on them. Now, there's a couple of things about this text as far as acting in service or waiting on them. This particular verse, um, I've heard it preached this way myself, at least read articles on it as well. And this particular verse has been ripped, kicking and screaming out of context to say that women are to be a subservient servant role. This proves it. The second she felt better, she took her rightful role of serving everyone in the house. That is not at all what the text is saying. Okay, I want to make sure I'm very clear about that. There is not a degraded service here. And the reason we know that Mark is not portraying a degraded servant's mindset is the same word in the original language that is used for serve here is the same word that is used to describe angels serving Christ. And it is the exact same word and context of Christ himself, describing Christ himself later when it says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark does not use a degrading language of service in this description, because you can't use the same degradation on Christ and it stand, correct? So when we look here, this is not saying that this means that all women are to be barefoot serving everyone else. Okay, that's, it's, it's been pulled out of context. I want to put that to rest for everyone this morning. But what it does mean, what does this text mean? What does it tell us? What can we learn from this that she got up and served? This is a prime example that those who come in contact with the great servant cannot help but serve. Those who are truly converted, those who are truly touched by Christ, those who are healed, she was healed from her physical illness, set free from what we think is spiritual oppression, and she immediately served those around her. That wasn't her responsibility. Remember, this isn't her house. And so as we as believers, we as those who are converted, the earmark of those who are truly followers of Christ is to serve. You see it not only here, but you see it throughout the Gospels. Everyone that comes in contact with Christ truly comes in contact, has a change of who they are. And they serve as their leader serves. And now this, this beautiful miracle has happened. And in a small town, even though they didn't have Facebook, the news spread, right? Anybody live in a small town for a lot? I mean, we were in one, right? Anybody ever grow up in a small town? Like, everybody knows everything. You have a flat tire at the gas station by that afternoon, everybody's asking you how your flat tire is, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so the, the news spread. So here it is, this little, this little city, Capernaum, and in, really in comparison, it wasn't terribly small, but it's still, the, there it is, it's spread. There, I mean, a Sabbath day, nobody's supposed to be walking, so I don't know what that looked like. Did they go as far as they could according to Sabbath law and holler, and then that person went as far as, I don't, I don't know how they made it work, but they did. So the news has spread. And what's so interesting here is that no one came to him till sundown. Anybody know why they didn't come to him till sundown? The Sabbath. So Sabbath for the Jew goes from Friday night at, at sunset to Saturday night at sunset. So we know in context of the timeline that we have that they went to the synagogue in Capernaum at sunset on Friday night. They likely went to Peter's house right after the synagogue that night, stayed the night, healed, stayed the night. The word spread all during the day on Saturday. 
but nobody could walk. They're not going to break the Sabbath law, healings or not. And so they couldn't break the Sabbath law, so as soon as it was dark on Saturday, here they came. And so the Sabbath is over now, and here they come. And they're lighting up at the front door, and it says the whole community is there. The whole city is there. So in verse 33, the whole city had gathered at the door. Verse 34, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Plug that in the back of your mind. Put that in, a, in, a, in your pocket. We want to talk about the secrecy here in just a few moments. Verse 35 uh, continues on. We'll, we'll look at that in just a moment. So when we look at the healings that he did, when it says the whole community here, uh, the <clears throat> entire city was gathered at the door, and it says he healed many who were ill with various diseases. Now, in our English rendering of this original language, it makes it sound like Jesus picked and chose picked and chose who he would heal at the door. In the original language, the word is rabim, and that is actually meaning the whole community. Anyone that was brought to him that was ill was healed. So this is not a many as in short change or not all. This is a simply many as in all-encompassing, right? So we've talked about all doesn't always mean all, but many can sometimes mean all. You have to look at the context. This is one of the contexts where the original word is rabim, Jesus healed everyone who came to him in Capernaum. But let's talk about for just a moment here that the demons were not allowed to speak. So as we've already discovered, even not even all the way through the first chapter of Mark, Mark is extremely good and and, um, just very skilled at using word pictures and giving us so much detail and so little um, in just very concise language. We're here, what he's talking about here, what he's referencing are places like Zechariah 13.2. He is wanting to show us several things. There's three things that I have determined that Mark is trying to show us. First, he's trying to show us the authority. We discussed that last week. So last week we talked about the authority that he's trying to show us. I mentioned Zechariah 13 too, because Christ fulfills the day of the Lord whenever the unclean spirits are to pass away, and he's to show his authority over that. But there's three, pra- there's three very practical reasons that he doesn't want them to know. Number one, the term Messiah was dramatically misunderstood by the Jews. Dramatically misunderstood. And it being known widely would have drawn a large amount of attention from the Jewish population. If you recall and know of the culture of that time, the Jews thought the Messiah was coming in to overthrow the Romans. He was going to raise up a Jewish army, and they were going to boot the Romans out, and they were going to finally establish the throne of David again, and they were going to rule other nations forever. Does does that sound like something the Romans were going to go let go unnoticed? If suddenly all the Jews said, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, and they start picking up swords and running to him, that's probably going to cause a stir. Secondly, this is a typological fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah. We've looked at Isaiah a couple different times as we've begun to to, to hone out and carve out the the image that, that Mark is showing us. If you look at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, 
I'll read that for us, but it's Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. But this is going to be in right in the midst of the suffering servant chapters of Isaiah, when the prophet is explaining to us precisely who the Messiah is and what he will embody while he's here from one aspect. It reads, Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made my name to be remembered. He has set my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my, night, my might for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with Yahweh and my reward with my God. So now Yahweh says, excuse me, so now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's very clear that this is speaking about the Messiah. The one who would come not only to redeem Jacob, but no, that task is too small for the Son of God. He is here to redeem the Gentile as well. Yet in the beginning of that description, he says, I'm going to conceal you in my hand. You're going to be the hidden arrow in my quiver, the weapon that no one can see till it's released. So this is Christ fulfilling the very suffering servant motif that we see in Isaiah. And the Psalms also speak about this as well. It speaks about the righteous one that must be hidden. Psalm 17, 8, Psalm 27, 5, and Psalm 64 and verse 3. We won't turn there, but if you'd like to write those down to look at later, uh, please do that. So number one, we did not want the Messiah, the message of the wrong Messiah, the wrong message of the Messiah, excuse me, to, to hit the Jews' ears. Number two, he's filling the, fulfilling the, the typological fulfillment of the suffering hidden servant. Number three, he's ensuring that the full combination of himself is seen on the cross and after. The, the, the miracles that he performed is not the reason he was here. It was a byproduct, yes. It was a blessing to those who were sick, yes. Did it, was it used to show the power of God? Absolutely. But his primary task was not miracles. I'm going to talk about that more shortly, but that is not why he came. He came to be the one on the cross, to be the sacrificial lamb, to be the one that fulfilled the Passover, to be the one who fulfilled all of those prophecies as the true Messiah who would redeem his people once and for all for eternity. He did not want anyone to know who he was until the cross and after who he fully and truly was so he had completed that mission. So those are the three reasons that I think he absolutely kept this hidden. And I bring this up and, and I go into such detail because there has been, especially in the last about 125 years, some um, uh, critics of Mark that said, well, the real reason that Mark 
keeps it hidden is because Jesus isn't really the Messiah. Um, and that, that Jesus was just a really good teacher, but the reason he didn't want people to get the idea that he wasn't the, the Messiah and kept it hidden is because he wasn't really God, and they, they've, you know, they've went on this. So I, I want to make sure and solidify in your mind that there is very good reason for Christ to keep this secret, because Mark has more secrecy of the Messiah, the Messiahship of Christ, than any other gospel. So we're going to see that over and over again. So let's have a good foundation of that. Now, as we've broken down this first section of our text... There's a couple things to apply. The first being, those who have been delivered from sin and death ought to respond in service to Christ and to his body. And no different than the, the mother-in-law of Peter immediately served those around her. She was healed. She was impacted. It was impacted in such a way that she immediately turned and served those around her. This is a natural response to such a delivery. It's a natural response. So, believer, I would ask, is that a natural response for you? Is that the natural response for the Savior who has saved you, the servant who served while he was here? Do you have that response? Secondly, if Christ served, not only should we serve simply because he saved us, but if the one who saved us served and washed people's feet, if the one who saved us came and was the secret servant, the suffering servant that was fulfilled, how dare we think that we have no less task than what he had? Let us be like our Savior and serve those around us. Number two, solace. So first we've seen healings. So in the expanding ministry, we've seen healings, and now we're going to look at solace. Christ is going to seek solace with the Father. Let's review, uh, if I can point you back to Mark chapter 1, let's review verses 35 through 39. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go elsewhere to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went, preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out the demons. So there's a few things for us to, to notice here. First, Christ, early in the morning, sought the Father. But it's interesting here the wording that is used for where he went in verse 35, it says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus went up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place. This idea of desolate place, the wording here is the same wording that is used for wilderness, for where John was preaching. It's the same word for wilderness, where Christ was tempted. And what's interesting is, in Capernaum, where they are on the lake, there is no desolate places physically. Uh, from a uh, landscape perspective, because it's extremely fertile land. The fields were grown 10 out of 12 months a year. So the terminology here, if you guys remember back when we talked about the wilderness of 
John the Baptist, and especially the wilderness of his temptation, it was more of a metaphorical wilderness fulfillment of what Israel went through, right? He was in the wilderness. He was in the time of repentance. He was in the time of growing with the Father. When the Father, just as the Father led Israel in the Old Testament, so Christ was in the wilderness as the true Israel. So he's seeking this solace, this this place of one-on-one time with the Father. And there are three times in Mark that this is recorded that Christ goes and does this. Three different times. In all three occasions that Christ goes and prays with the Father, in each of them there is a time of implied or expressed opposition set before him. Implied or expressed opposition. The opposition here, how many demons have we seen him cast out already and he's not done yet in this passage? That, would, I would say, is a lot of opposition. Another um, uh, opportunity is later on. One of the examples is the Garden of Gethsemane, when he goes off by himself to pray. The third is the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark, when there's intense, intense opposition to him. And what we see this, what we draw from this usage of Mark showing in the actions of Christ This is telling us that Christ himself depended on the Father. That he sought solace in the Father. It's been said that he is the Son, one in being with the Father, and the servant, one in purpose with his will. Jesus had his motivation to fulfill his mission come from the Father himself. This is a prime example of us seeking the face of our Father just the same as the Son sought the face of the Father. We need to understand if Christ Himself, the Son of God, the one who had no sin, sought the face of the Father for solace, for comfort, for motivation to complete His mission, I can assure you that we must do the same our hearts and minds set on the Father, seeking solace with Him, the one-on-one time with Him. Now what's interesting is He had went far enough away, although the desolate place isn't a a physical place so much as it is a a metaphorical place from the way that Mark uses the words here, but He was still far enough away that no one could find Him. And we're going to come across some interesting examples here because we have to remember that Mark is getting his gospel, the majority of the information in his gospel, from Peter himself. And so when we look at verse 36, and it says, And Simon and his companions searched for him. Peter is saying, I was the leader of the ones who went to search for him. For example, Luke, when he records this same situation, he just says, the people. He doesn't specify Peter. So Peter is saying, I led people, and Mark is writing this down, I led people to go find him. But then in verse 37, it says, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, this is a very interesting word in the original language. It's kind of hard to translate because there's a particular mood and implication here. The word looking or seeking in the Greek is used in several places in 
the Gospel of Mark, and it actually holds a connotation of hunting or aggressively searching. It's not just a, oh, here, let me look around. Is he here? Anybody ever looked for your kids? Just kind of casually, yeah, everything's fine. This is an aggressive hunting. They have a specific task in mind. They, are, they really can't believe that he's there. And the same looking and seeking word is used throughout Mark, and every single time it is used, every time without fail, it has a negative connotation of interrupting ministry, disbelief, and attempts to kill Christ. So the mood of the original language here has a much more than just looking for him. They were disappointed in him. He was supposed to be there healing people. Jesus, where did you go? You have a job to do. You're here. You called us. We followed you. We saw the ministry that you're doing. Why are you out here by yourself? That's what they're saying. Peter is here obstinately impeding the true ministry of Christ. And you can see how that is backed up by Christ's response. For at the end of Christ's response in verse 38, it says, for that is what I came for. He's correcting them. So he tells them, I'm here to preach, not to heal. Yes, healing is part of what I've done. Yes, I'm serving. Yes, it's how I establish the power to show you that I am divine. But my job, my purpose, I am here for something else, not to be your healer. Not to simply stay here and cast out demons. In fact, it's been said, seeking connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than to submit and follow. In this respect, seeking for Jesus is not a virtue in the Gospel of Mark nor are clamoring crowds a sign of success or aid to ministry. Here as elsewhere in Mark, enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Indeed, it can oppose faith. Now, when we think about Mark getting his words from Peter, and this calling out Peter as the one who was impeding the ministry of Christ, there's another time that we're going to see this later on in Mark. Mark chapter 8, verses 30 2 and 33. When, Christ, when Peter says, No, Lord, surely you will not die. And what is Christ's response? Get behind me, Satan, for this is what I have come for. It's almost as though when Peter, at the end of his life, was looking back and, and remembering these things that he's telling Mark, went, Man, I was dumb. Right? Anybody in here old enough? I'm old enough now, so I'm sure there's others who are old enough now to look back in your life and go, that was really dumb. Josh impeded the work of Christ. That was just not wise. Anybody else in here feel this besides me? Can I get some hands? Okay, good. And so Peter, in reiterating this to Mark, you can almost feel his shame, his chagrin, right? He's looking back and going, yep, that was me. I tried to control Christ. Yep, that was me. Peter's the one that came in and said, no, Christ, you're not going to fulfill the ultimate destiny you came here to do. I won't allow that. And, and Jesus literally, you can almost hear him telling Mark, Jesus literally had to call me Satan. Right? And Mark's writing all this down, probably laughing. Okay? So when we think about this, impeding the will of God, impeding the mission of Christ, how often do we do that? How often do we seek Christ to control him? 
Do you know how many times I've seen plans laid out by good, good-natured people who, who really strive, they want to do things for God, they really do, but they plan all these things, and then they, they say things or post things, we're just praying that God shows up. How many times is that our mentality? How many times do we go, God, I want to move to such and such a place, please make it happen. When in reality, that may not be what we're supposed to do. Do we seek Christ to try to control him, or do we rely on the Father as Christ did? Do you see the, the, the positions juxtaposed there? How Mark is showing Christ sought the Father's will in solace to do what he wanted to do, and Peter here is in his excitement going, Christ, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And Christ, ever gentle and ever loving, at least in this situation, says, that's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I'm here to do. That's not the plan. That's not the mission. Let's go to other places and complete the mission. So that's the application I want us to think about. Let us seek the Father in fellowship in that focusing on His will, not ours. We are seeking to follow, not seeking to control. Think about your relationship with Christ. Are you seeking to follow or are you seeking to control? Because there is a vast difference. Which line will you go down? Are we disciples in opposition like Peter? Are we disciples in submission like Christ? Something we should consider. Number three, compassion. Verses 40 to 45, it'll wrap up our text this morning. So, so far we've seen the healings. We've seen the solace of Christ and the juxtapositioned opposed natures of the two people there. Now, Mark is going to show us the compassion of Christ. Verse 40 to 45 reads, And a leper came to Jesus, pleading with him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, and immediately went, sent him away, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the news around, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Now, we've moved on from Capernaum. Verse 45, or excuse me, verse 40 is a shift. He's now going out to other places. And verse 39 gives us an idea of his mindset now towards the Jewish people. If you notice in verse 39, it says he was preaching in their synagogues. Throughout the rest of Mark, anytime he references any synagogue, it is always their synagogues. It is always their religious leaders. It's always confrontation with the scribes. Mark is making it very clear that it's, it's a difference now than when he first went to the synagogue in Capernaum. And so now he's going out, and there's a leper that came to Jesus. And I want to paint another visual picture for you. I hope to draw you in here because the fact that this leper came to Jesus 
in a town is wildly inappropriate in that day and time. Wildly inappropriate. So let me set the stage of a couple things for you. First of all, leprosy was considered, especially by the Jews and rabbinic writings and those kinds of things, to be equal to death. You were basically a dead man walking. They considered it the same level of power it would take to heal, excuse me, to raise someone from the dead is the same amount of power it would take to heal someone from leprosy. In fact, Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 will give us some details about how they were to act. But then there's entire sections of Leviticus chapter 14 um, and surrounding that give ex- extreme detail on exactly how the priests were to handle leprosy. It's a big deal. Basically what I'm saying is it's a big deal. And if we look at the writings around the area of Capernaum and around the, the, the places of that area, both scripturally and um, Jewish writings and those kinds of things, leprosy was extremely um, hot at the time that Christ. It was a hot spot for leprosy right there, at that particular time. So there was a lot of lepers. And so essentially what had happened is this leper broke the ritual cleanliness of the Son of God himself. Now, how did he do that? Well, back in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, it reads, As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn. So he was to wear torn clothes. The hair of his head shall be uncovered, so he could not wear a head covering, which is traditional Jewish male garb. And he shall cover his mustache, which was absolutely unheard of. You did not cover your facial hair. It was a sign of Jewish masculinity. So you had to wear a face covering. And you had to call out, unclean, unclean, everywhere you went. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His place of habitation shall be outside the camp. But that was back in Levitical law. Okay, rabbinic writings changed it a little bit and softened it just a little bit and said that because we no longer have the tents and the tabernacle and, and we don't move around the camp, you don't have, you have to live outside the city, but you can at least come into the city. But you have to stay 50 paces, 50 paces from any person. You still have to wear all the garb and you still have to yell unclean, unclean. And if you get too close, it is legally allowed for anyone to stone you that they want to until you're out of range. Don't get too close to people. So lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself, a historian wrote. The disease robbed them of their health, and the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family and fellowship, and worshiping community. They were completely ostracized. And so this leper has heard about this man that can heal. Whether he thinks he's truly God, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But this leper heard, there's got to be a chance. If he can heal all these people in Capernaum, if this is somewhat true, it is worth the chance. Let me go see. So he's drawn inexplicably to Christ. Drawn inexplicably. And this leper doesn't, from what we see here, yell, unclean. He doesn't make his presence known. He simply runs up to Christ, falling at his knees, right in front of him, breaking the ceremonial cleanness of Christ, being that close. Christ could no longer enter the temple. For a Jew, that was the worst of the worst. 
if you were ceremonial unclean. Not to mention the disease was most often transferred by physical contact. So not only has he made him unclean from a spiritual perspective, he has now potentially given him the very disease that is a death sentence to every person that lived during that time. This was a big deal. As everyone, see it in your mind's eye. The gasps of the crowd around him. And yet, and yet, in verse 41, it says, and moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. We studied in Sunday school just last week that compassion is the root of mercy. Mercy, when you look at someone, is they, they don't deserve to receive what they're receiving. You have mercy on someone when you want to help them out of a situation, when you, when you empathize with them. The emotion of the original language is so strong that it can be almost interrupt, interpreted as anger coupled with compassion. It's this idea that I can't believe sin has caused this person to have this disease. It's this angered compassion. He's angry because the suffering of this individual. Their English is the language we speak, but it is subpar when it's compared to Greek. It's just, you can't have the mood, you can't have the emotion carried with it. The emotion here is, I can't believe you're having to deal with this. I hate that this is what you're having to go through. Anybody ever felt that for your kids? The mercy of having the flu or chicken pox or anything like that, and you, you just feel helpless. You can't help your children. Or maybe perhaps your spouse. It's a very hard translation, but the idea here is he wants to help, and he's angered that he needs to. Not because he's come, but because he's diseased. And he finishes by saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And the language here again has the sense of an exorcism. Cleansing, not healing. If you notice the difference, the, the shift in words. Before he was healing every person that was brought to him. But with leprosy, it wasn't simply healing. You had to be cleansed. You had to be, it had to be removed from you. As though it were being exorcised. And so Christ is here. He's being moved with empathy. He's being moved with mercy and compassion. He's angry that this image bearer of God has to deal with the consequences of sin. And yet, he heals him anyway. He's moved with compassion and he heals him. And the healing is complete. It's immediate. The cleansing is done. There's nothing left for the leper to do to be more cleansed. He is completely pure. The disease that would make him a dead man walking is no longer abiding within him. And then verse 44, to prove to those around him that he still respected the law of Moses, that he was not here to replace the law, but to fulfill it, as we know from other passages, he says in verse 44, See that you say nothing to anyone, so his secrecy is still there, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. 
And he commanded to do it with such fervor that the, uh, the language of the, uh, of the Greek here is that he snorted the command. In other words, the same language that's the root word for anger in the Greek is how he commanded him. Don't say anything. It's a direct command. There is no beating around the bush. It's not a suggestion. He is giving the leper a command. Go and do this. And yet, and yet, this man who was just healed, who was drawn to Jesus by something he didn't probably understand, he just heard of someone that might be able to heal him, he knew of his starry state, he identified himself as a dead man walking, and yet he went to Christ anyway, and Christ showed compassion and healed him, and he can obey the first command. The first command. We don't know whether he, he obeyed the second one, but we know for sure he didn't obey the first one. Because in verse 45 it says, He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from area, from everywhere. Excuse me. And so now we see the very Son of God who showed compassion on a dead man walking, who healed him whenever he broke every regulation, whenever he didn't honor him as who he should have honored him as, came to him and said, I'm a dead man walking, but I know you. You can heal me if you will. And he couldn't obey one command. Now I want to apply this. We sinners are drawn to Christ because of the Spirit. We don't know why, but He shows us that we are dead men walking. The Spirit says you are dead men walking, and the only one that can do anything about this is that man standing over there. And we are drawn to Him out of something we don't understand, and we fall at our knees as dead men and women walking making him unclean by our very presence. And he looks at us with compassion. And he reaches out and touches us when we are unclean. And he says, I am willing be clean. And yet, what he commands us, we can't do. Do we follow in obedience or do we act like the leper? Do we seek His face or do we impede the very mission that He has set for us to complete? This leper who was shown compassion by the very Son of God didn't follow one single command and in so doing of His disobedience, He impeded the very mission of the Son of God. Now let me ask you, believer, the compassion that He has shown you are you impeding the mission that He has for you? Because we are here, church, to complete what He started. He has called us and united us as a group of believers and empowered us with the Spirit amongst all of us to go and finish the job. Are you impeding or are you completing? Because the leper impeded. The leper made it where Christ could not continue his mission. It was so busy. There were so many people because he couldn't follow one single directive that he impeded the very Son of God who compassionately saved him 
The dead men walking was cleansed. Brothers and sisters, we are dead men and women walking that have been cleansed. And I challenge each one of us as a body of Christ to be about the mission, to be obedient, to look to him and go, yes, sir, let me do what you've asked me to do. Now that can only be done through the Spirit. I'm not saying to white-knuckle it. I'm not saying to try hard, do good, fail. I'm not saying any of that. But what I am saying is seek the solace. Look to the Father. Don't be like Peter and try to make him control things, seeking to control instead of seeking to obey. Don't be like the leper. Fall at your feet, yes. Fall at his feet on your knees, yes. Show your humility. Show, show the, the need for him and understand that because he's willing, we are cleansed, but then go and obey. Don't go and disobey. Because he wasn't repulsed by our filth, he had compassion. He took our uncleanness. He became sin when he knew no sin. That's what he did for us. That's the motivation for how we live. That's what changes us. Let us rest in what he's done and obey and do what he's asked us to do. So as I get ready to conclude, I want us to think about what we've learned today in Christ's ministry expanding. We have seen the clarity with which Mark is starting. Anybody see Christ's figure in more clarity now through Mark than when we started? Mark, is, it's, it's almost like a, a, a camera lens being zoomed in and you're kind of playing with it and you're starting to get a better picture. So I pray that that's what you're seeing. You're starting to see it come into focus. But now we've seen the first two days of his public ministry and beginning to spread out and expand that his authority, coupled with his compassion, coupled with his warrior spirit, has come to do a specific thing given to him by the Father. And he will complete it. And I pray, I pray that you walk away from today's message understanding the compassion of Christ that he had towards you. Because the same kind of compassion that he had for that leper is the same kind of compassion that he has for every believer in this room. That our filth did not repulse him, that our uncleanness did not keep us away from him because he gave himself so that he could purify us and take that uncleanness upon himself. Remember that, because that's the motivation for how our life, lives are lived going forward. That's who we are now. We are no longer dead men and women walking. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you for your compassion. We glorify and thank you for the expanding ministry that we've seen as, as the beautiful picture and and motif of, of the suffering servants becoming more clear, Lord, it's an amazing, amazing privilege to be able to see, look back and see the Son of God and what he did on this earth. I pray that each one of us would be impacted by the compassion that we see in this message, understanding that the compassion from this text is the same compassion and mercy that he displayed to us, and that we would live our lives in accordance to that mercy. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.